reading this morning from uh, First Ephesians, no, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we ask that as we think now about that through Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 1, we ask that you would open uh, the eyes of our hearts to be able to see much more clearly the wonder of your grace. Lord, open our hearts and open our mouths so that we might enjoy your glory and sing your praise. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, every year uh, my custom has been, well, it's been my custom for the last two years. This is the third year, so I don't know if that's a custom, but the custom uh, has been uh, every year to spend six or seven weeks looking at a theological topic. Uh, By that I mean that we spend some time in the, in the preaching through the year, to look at the Bible's overall teaching on a particular uh, subject area. So two years ago, we looked at what the Bible says about the church. Last year, you might remember if you were here, we looked at what the Bible says about the Bible. And this year, we're looking at uh, what the Bible, or the words that the Bible uses and the words that Christians use to describe salvation. So what it means when the Bible says that God saves and rescues us, and then also how it is that God saves and rescues us. This morning, uh, obviously, we're beginning with the word grace. I was thinking just before, 
that today's sermon has got to be the easiest sermon to pick songs for. Eric has uh, <laughs> just able to go through all the songs. There's almost every song in our song list has the word grace in it. So this morning we're doing uh, the word grace and uh, if you want to think a little bit more about grace, there's a wonderful book called Proof that's just come out, Proof Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. And it's on sale as an ebook at the moment, so if you're interested, you can go online and get that. And there's a copy coming for the church library as well. But grace, simply put, is the idea that what God does in saving people, in saving a people for himself, is entirely an act of his free will. He does it because he decides to do it. He saves us not because of anything we do, but because he's gracious and because he's kind. And Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 are a part of the Bible, I think, which unpack that idea in a spectacular way. They, They open our eyes to see the full wonder of God's grace. There's a lot that can be said about God's grace, but these two chapters highlight, I think, four of the most essential qualities of God's grace. So first of all, uh, Ephesians 1 tells us God's grace is thoroughly undeserved. Uh, To see that, flick over to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And there God says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul reveals what we are like apart from God's grace. We're dead, dead in sin. Sometimes the picture, I think, the imaginary picture that we have of people is that everybody is running around trying to find God, desperately searching here and there, trying to to grasp God. And that what God does is he sees our meagre efforts to find him and he rewards people. But the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that we're dead. Dead people don't hunt around looking for someone to make them alive. They lie in the grave. I mean, when was the last time you walked uh, through a cemetery and heard the voices of people calling out saying, please, could somebody help me? Paul describes every human being like this in Romans. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. It's not just that no one's righteous, that our reward schemes are not up to the bar. It's that no one even seeks God. We're dead, or to use Paul's other metaphor, we're slaves. Slaves to Satan, slaves to our sinful nature. One of the great ironies, I think, 
uh, is that people who believe that choosing to, in choosing to reject God, they're choosing to do that out of their own free will. They, they don't see that actually they're doing it not because out of their free will, but because they're enslaved. They're being led by the nose, the Bible says. They're being led by the nose by Satan and by their own sinful hearts. We don't go, we don't walk away from God as free people. We walk away from God as people chained and bound and led there by Satan and by our own sinful desires. We were by nature objects of wrath, says God. As I never tire of saying, the problem is not merely that not merely the things that we do, but it's who we are. It's not merely, as the saying goes, that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Rather, we are by nature objects of wrath. Everything about us is offensive to God. Think again of the death imagery that Paul uses. We are like rotting corpses. Nobody wants to be friends with a dead person or a rotting corpse. It's not that deep down our desires are noble and good and we're let down by kind of a lack of resolve or by a weakness that means that we can't implement our good intentions. Now, our problem is that our deepest desires are to do the very things that God hates. It's not just that we're greedy, but we enjoy being greedy and we're drawn compulsively to it. The problem is not just that we abuse power, but that we enjoy abusing our power. We like to get our own way. It's not merely that we're shriveled up in hatred and bitterness, but in some deformed and distorted way, we actually want to be bitter and hateful. It's not just that we're lazy, but we enjoy it. Our great desire in life is not to have to do anything. It's not merely that we lust after other things and other people, but we drink it in. We are by nature, Paul says, objects of wrath. It's not that the sins come along later on and kind of attached itself to us like a one of those insects, you know, that comes and finds its life living off the host. No, it's part of us. It's knit into the very fabric of who we are. Strangely, our society believes two wildly contradictory truths. One is that we have the absolute power of self-determination. I can do whatever I want. That's one truth. The other truth is that we can't change who we're born to be. And that the only solution is to embrace our inner selves. The two can't actually go together. And yet actually, strangely, the two are prophesied from on high every day in the news media, on the television and the conversations that we have with people. But the Bible offers a third alternative. It says we're born sinners, we're by nature objects of wrath. It says, yes, we don't have the power of self-determination. We can't change who we are. A leopard can't change its spots. 
But the Bible also says that God has launched a rescue mission in the person of Jesus Christ, who's putting the world right. God's grace is undeserved. It's radical grace. And it's not until we see the extent of our brokenness that we can fully grasp the wonder of God's grace. We were dead. We were slaves to sin, but God and his grace, knowing what we're like, has reached down and plucked us from the grave. God's grace is undeserved. Secondly, Paul says God's grace was planned. More than anything else, I think, that's the theme of this section in Ephesians chapter 1. God's grace was planned. God planned his grace in two ways. First, God planned in eternity past that salvation would be in Christ. So verse 7 of chapter 1, In him that is in Christ we have redemption through through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. We are redeemed, saved by God's rich grace, but God planned it beforehand. He planned beforehand that it would be in Christ. And he planned that it would happen at exactly the right time when the times had reached their fulfilment. Listen to this from Acts chapter 4. So the the early believers are praying and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So here's Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles and they're all planning the demise of Jesus. And then they pray, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So here they are, they're scheming away, coming up with their plans to kill the Christ. And they're doing exactly what God had planned for them to do in his power and will beforehand. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. He's talking about the gospel. The gospel was God's plan laid down in eternity past. That salvation would be in Jesus Christ. God didn't stumble into the plan. The sin of Adam and Eve didn't catch him off guard. Instead of he had to quickly come up with another plan. He didn't send Jesus into the world to save people and then suddenly find Jesus hanging on the cross and, and, and he had to look for plan B. No, he planned it before the creation of the world to save a people for himself through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So God planned that salvation would be in Christ, but he also planned that he would save a people for himself. Uh, sorry, he also planned whom he would save as a people for himself. It's a very hard thing to escape that emphasis in this passage. So, verse, uh, verse 4, I think it is. Yeah, verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Or again in verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything who worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The emphasis in this chapter is on God's plan and God's purpose and God's will. It's God's good purpose. That word predestined is the same word used in those two other passages I read just before. Acts chapter 4, God planned in advance that Herod and Pilate would crucify the Christ. God planned in advance the wisdom of the gospel. In the same way, God predestined the the salvation of a people for himself. Not according to what he foresaw in us, but according to God's pleasure and will. That idea is all the way through the Bible. So Romans chapter 9 talks about Jacob and Esau. Paul writes, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, that is their mother, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It's a hard truth to grasp, but Paul says it's bound up actually with God's grace and understanding the wonder of God's grace. It's not that God, as I said before, foresaw anything in us. And it's not, as John Wesley thought, that God gives to every person just enough grace to be able to accept Christ. They can't do anything else, but they have just enough grace for that. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that God's grace is thoroughly undeserved. We were dead, slaves to Satan, slaves to our sinful nature. And though that's hard to understand, we need to hold that together with other biblical truths that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that whoever comes to Jesus, Jesus won't drive away. In other words... In putting these kind of two truths together, we should never think that we might come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please save me. And he'll say, I'm sorry, the Father hasn't chosen you. You're not welcome here. Jesus says that will never happen because whoever comes to Jesus, he will not drive away. If you come to Jesus, he will receive you. Charles Spurgeon, the... uh, a 19th century Baptist preacher was right to say that if we want to be holy and if we want to know Christ and if we come to if we come to him we can know that God has elected us to it because we couldn't come to Christ except that God draws us and on the flip side if we don't want to be holy and if we don't want to know Jesus then we can hardly blame God for not giving us what we don't want. 
John says, uh, Jesus says, sorry, in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. But he also says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, the most important thing to grasp is that even when we come to Jesus, even in that, as we look back on the way that God has worked in our lives, we look back and we see that it was God who in some strange and mysterious way was the prime mover in our salvation. He was the one who drew drew us to himself. He was the one who called us to himself so that ultimately every aspect of our salvation, even our coming to Christ, is an act of God's grace and unmerited favour. I had a friend uh, who I went to Bible college with who became a Christian watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, of all things. And what was miraculous was not merely that he was watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, but it was the first night in months that he hadn't been stoned. And God worked through that to bring him to himself. He could see God's hand in drawing him to himself even amidst his desperate efforts to run away from God. God's grace is undeserved. God's grace was planned before the beginning of time. Third, God's grace is extravagant grace. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In those few verses alone, there are a heap of blessing which God, blessings which God has poured out on us in his grace. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is, every blessing that we need for spiritual life, God has given to us. Psalm 23 The Lord's my shepherd. There's nothing which I need which I don't have. I lack nothing. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We bring nothing to the table, but God gives us everything. He chose us to be holy and blameless, Paul says. We were dead, remember that? We were God's enemies. We were slaves to our sinful natures. But God's plan is to make us holy and blameless, or as chapter 5 says, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. That word blameless has a massive Old Testament theology kind of packed into it because that was the kind of animals that people brought for the temple sacrifices. They brought spotless animals. They came week after week, day after day with these animals and they said, I'm not I'm not spotless enough to come into the presence of God. And so here I am, I'm bringing this animal in my place, a spotless animal in my place. And Paul says, finally, these people who were blemished and dead and enslaved through Jesus Christ are presented to God as these spotless animals, these spotless people 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. We were enemies and now we're children. It's one thing, isn't it, to invite an enemy over for lunch. You can maybe imagine that, that your arch nemesis, you know, thinking in the, 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 the language of uh, you know, Superman, and you know, perhaps your arch nemesis you invite over for a cup of after, you know, tea in the afternoon, or maybe you invite them around for lunch. It's one thing, isn't it? That would be extraordinary. But to take your arch nemesis, your great enemy, and to adopt them into your family and invite them into your home and bring them to live with your other children and split up the inheritance of your firstborn son and share it with them. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? God's grace is extravagant grace, lavish grace. There's no space left over that we need to fill in because God has done everything and given us everything. God's grace is undeserved. His grace is planned before the beginning of time. God's grace is extravagant grace. And last of all, God's grace is for his glory and not ours. Verse 3, praise to be to the Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Verse 6, he predestined us and adopted us as his sons. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, he saved us in Christ for what purpose? In order that we might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, having believed you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory. Although God's plan is to save us from sin and death and judgment, the purpose is not actually, first of all, our salvation. As important as your life might seem to be, that's not God's primary purpose. That's part of God's purpose, but that's not the end goal. The great end goal is God's glory. Think of these words from Isaiah 43. You have neither heard nor understood God says to his people, from old your ear has not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. But God's going to save them. Why? For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Why? Why have you done it, God? For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Why is salvation by God's grace? It's so that we would know that God's done it. If God shared it with us and said, well, well, come on board with me and help me out in doing this great work of your salvation. If God did that, then... God would yield his glory to us. It would be shared with us, but it's not. Salvation is all an act of God's generous love. If we deny that God's grace is undeserved, we rob God of his glory. 
If God owes us salvation, it's no longer an act of his generosity. If we deny that God's grace is planned, we rob God of his glory. And God is left looking like the guy who throws a party and then sits there hoping that people will come along. But the message of the Bible isn't God sitting there saying, please, will somebody come to my party? That's not the picture of God that Ephesians chapter 1 paints. The picture that Ephesians chapter 1 paints is a God who planned the salvation of his people from the beginning of time. If we deny that grace is undeserved, we rob God of his glory. If we deny that grace is planned, we rob God of his glory. And if we deny that grace is extravagant, we rob God of his glory as well. God is left looking like Uncle Scrooge, the richest man in the world, but who keeps everything for himself. I could help you, says God, but I don't think I will. I just, I'd rather keep it for myself. That's not what God is like. God is extravagant and generous, more generous than we could possibly deserve more generous than we can possibly imagine. God's grace is undeserved, planned before the beginning of time, extravagant and for the praise of God's glory. Well, if you've received God's grace in Jesus Christ, then bask and rejoice and delight in the wonderful generosity of it and in God's wonderful kindness. And if you haven't, received God's glory in Jesus Christ, then come and receive it. And know that you don't have to bring anything to the table because it's God who does it all. God gives us this precious gift and all we need to do is to open our hands to receive it from him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your extraordinary kindness that we should be such wicked sinners such hateful people such selfish self-interested people such loveless and callous people and yet you would send your own son Jesus Christ into our world, to die in our place that we might be holy and blameless in your sight. Lord, not only that you would do that, but that you would plan it so carefully that you would draw us to yourself, that you would pour out on us, everything that we could possibly need 
that you would do it for your glory. God, help us to see in new and fresh amazement the wonder of your grace. And Lord, for those of us who have not tasted the goodness of the gospel of grace, we ask that you would woo them and draw them, that they might receive with empty hands your precious gift through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.